It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Kriya Yoga Podcast. Today I'm here uh, with another very special guest. His name is Joseph Selby. And I became aware of him through a book that he co-wrote called The Yugas, Keys to Understand Our Hidden Past, Emerging Energy, and Enlightened Future. Um, Joseph Selby is a Kriya Yogi. He's also uh, worked on, written a book called The Physics of God, and he's been living at Ananda for the past 45 years. So he's been fairly well um, steeped in the tradition, practice, and culture of uh, Kriya Yoga. And today we're going to talk about the Yugas. So thank you very much for being here today, Joseph. Uh, my pleasure. Yeah, so for a lot of people, the Yugas may be a new idea, but um, I'm pretty certain that most of them know what they are. But if you don't mind, um, could you take a moment to just explain what exactly are the Yugas and, and how, how do we know about them? So the Yugas as a concept comes to us from India and goes way back in time to when it was uh, talked about uh, in the like six, 7,000 BC era. Uh, and that tradition has obviously uh, followed its way through the uh, Indian teachings to today. And the basic idea is that we live in a cyclical uh, world of influence rather than a linear world. So Darwinian evolution is linear. It says that um, animals evolve in specific directions and they, they get more complex, they get more uh, adept in whatever their species is good at over the period of time through mutations and that sort of thing. And our science today has really applied Darwinian thinking to everything, including uh, history, including the development of mankind. So the assumption that you will nearly always run into, certainly in mainstream uh, courses having to do with, with archaeology and history, is that Man has evolved from the hunter-gatherer stage where they just eked out a miserable existence and then they figured out how to do various technologies like pottery and weaving and growing crops. And they built on those um, abilities, made them more sedentary, and they started living in large collections of people and they grew big crops that led to cities and city states and civilization and more technology and in a more or less straight line brings us to today which Darwinian uh, point of view would say is the epitome of human development today mm -hmm. well the cycle of the yuga suggests that mankind's development has waxed and waned in a 24,000-year cycle. Mm -hmm. 
So according to Sri Teshwar, author of The Holy Science, and in fact, in The Holy Science is an introduction to the yugas, Sri Teshwar says that we are now on an upswing of human development that began in 500 AD and is going to continue all the way up to 1150 AD, 11,500 I mean, um, and then it will descend again, back from that peak of human development, back down to uh, what it was in 500 AD uh, in this cycle. What that also means for us is if we look backwards to the past, our own past, our known past, that the lowest point of human development would have been from uh, either side of 500 AD, roughly um, a thousand years, mm -hmm. 1200 years more exactly, and that if you go back before that 1200 year cycle, just before 500 AD, you will start to encounter a consciousness and a state of human development that is equal to what we have today. Mm -hmm. And that if you go even farther back in the past, you will encounter uh, human development or evidence of human development in this case that is superior, uh, far superior to what we have today. And if you go far enough back, you will reach a higher spiritual age in which mankind as a whole uh, had direct perception of God, percep direct perception of divine spirit. Right. And then, uh, if you look forward from where we are now, we will go through those same phases again until, once again, mankind has reached that high state of spiritual development. So that's the, the yugas in a nutshell. There are different periods within this cycle that are recognized as having distinct qualities. So there is the Kali Yuga, which is the lowest era, uh, era the lowest age within the 24,000 year cycle. And it's marked by mankind basically being limited to understanding just gross matter. And then there's the next higher age, which we are in, uh, which is Dwapara Yuga. People often ask me, well, what, what does Dwapara really mean? Mm. Expecting it to have some, you know, kind of sexy connotation. But it actually just means two. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Dwapara is the second age. Okay. Uh, and um, Treta is the third age. So, mm. but uh, Dwapara Yuga, which we're in now, it, its characteristic is that mankind has a understanding of energy being the foundation of matter. Mm -hmm. And as we are seeing now, that knowledge has allowed our civilization and society to exploit how energy and matter work together to give us instantaneous communication, super fast travel, uh, and all the uh, trappings that go with those things that, you know, are, are part of our technological civilization. Right. And that, um, when we think about these ages in this cyclical way, when you're saying Kali Yuga, 
for people who might not necessarily be aware of it just yet. And of course, those of you who aren't, I highly recommend getting the book, The Yugas by Joseph, and also looking at Sri Yukteswar's uh, Holy Science to get a little bit better understanding of this. But um, Kali Yuga, we would relate to the idea of the Dark Ages, say between 700 BC and around 1700 AD. And that was when humanity was pretty rough. And in our present day, when you're talking about Dwapara Yuga, that's, the, that's when we're on the upswing, the, the second part of the cycle, which again began around 1700 AD, around there. Correct, exactly. Right. The Dark Ages technically are a smaller band of that at the, the very kind of bottom of that cycle. So they're roughly from uh, a couple hundred um, AD through about 1000 AD. Mm-hmm. Opinions vary on, on what exactly the Dark Ages even are, but it's generally right, right at the low point of the cycle, which is very telling. Right. <laughs> and, and, um, then, uh, and then we have, just to finish the, the basic idea of the yuga, so then we are from our Dwapara yuga, where we have this understanding of energy, we then move eventually into Treta yuga, where mankind as a whole understands the power of mind. Mm-hmm. And Sri Teshwar says that people in Treta Yuga can communicate telepathically. And then we pass through Treta and enter that highest age, which is Satya Yuga. And in Satya Yuga is, is the age when I was describing that mankind as a whole would have a direct perception of the divine. So right. those are the four ages, Kali, Dwapara, Trepta, and Satya Yuga. And we go through those every, about every 24,000 years where we're going to spend time in the, in the Satya Yuga and then it descends and we lose a little bit of that understanding until eventually we make it to the Kali Yuga and humanities and its dark age state again. And then it goes back up again towards the, the age of enlightenment, correct? Exactly. Good. Yeah. Well, one quick question I have, which may not be a quick question after all, is um, you know, being, I'm a Vedic astrologer, and um, one of the questions that comes up a lot to me is, how can you say that we're not in the Kali Yuga? And my response is, just do your history and <laughs> look around at how humans have, have changed even in the last 100 or 200 years. But how do you, how do you speak to that? I mean, do people say that to you? How can you say we're in Dwapara Yuga? Does that ever come up? Uh, it actually comes up a lot, but um, generally from people who um, are familiar with or believe in the current opinion in India, which is that we are in fact still in Kali Yuga. Mm-hmm. And so Sri Teshwar was unusual among Indian teachers to present a 24,000-year cycle where the tradition in India today is that it's 4.2 million years in length. Uh, And I won't go into all the details of of where this big difference arose, but according to Sri Yukteswar, there was basically an error in calculation that occurred in the Dark Ages, in Kali Yuga, Mm -hmm. and that that error, when it was um, kind of spun out into the length, is what created this uh, enormously long cycle as far as they're concerned in India. So in India, what they tend to say is, well, we must be in Kali Yuga because of 
the low morals of the world. Mm-hmm. And they look with, uh, you know, great sorrow on a world that is materialistic and, um, you know, given to kind of lower pursuits. We obviously, uh, sex and money and intoxication are very much with us. Mm-hmm. But you and mentioned... That's, their, that's the way they justify it. But Sri Yukteswar made the distinction not in terms of human behavior, but in terms of human knowledge. Right. And so what he said is that the advent of Vaparayuga, which we've been in for roughly 300 years now, that with that advent would come this deeper perception of the structure of reality. And the deeper perception includes this um, understanding that energy is a subtler substrate of matter. And that we see a uh, development from the beginning of Dwapara Yuga, 1700 AD, to 1900 AD, being a... um, Kind of a transition period, a, a twilight, as Sri Yukteswar um, described it, or dawn actually, um, <clears throat> of Dwapara Yuga. And it was during that roughly 200 year span that science was born, that um, the laws of physics were elucidated more clearly, uh, electricity was discovered, magnetism was discovered. And by the end of that 200-year period, roughly 1900, mankind as a whole uh, believed that matter and energy interacted, that energy was this separate force that had its own laws and its own rules. And then in 1905, Einstein published his now famous equation, E equals mc squared, in his paper on the special theory of relativity. And he basically said, there is no matter. Mm. Matter is just sort of condensed energy. Right. And this was a huge revolution in physics. As far as our normal lives go, we hardly would notice any difference. Right. Uh, because we're talking about laws that have to do with change of behavior of objects approaching the speed of light, etc. <laughs> but that fundamental understanding has led to these amazing discoveries, some with pluses and minuses, like nuclear energy, mm-hmm. but it's led to solar energy, it's led to uh, the, the world of the computer and instantaneous communication around the world because of that more subtle understanding of, of energy. Right. There's, a, there's another thing, though, that is also happening, which is, in the long run, more important. And that is that not only has mankind as a whole, whole begun to understand the laws of energy 
where matter is concerned, we've also become more aware of subtle energy mm. within ourselves. Mm-hmm. So you can see a lot of things that are happening in our society today that have to do with being able to perceive subtle energy, the, the rise of meditation, right. the rise of yoga postures and Tai Chi and Pilates, the, the rise of alternative forms of healing mm-hmm. that have to do with um, hands-on healing or stimulating someone's life force through chiropractic or acupressure and acupuncture and a whole host of other subtle healing techniques are all emerging in the last couple hundred years. Right. Because mankind as a whole is now able to feel, to actually perceive subtle energy. Mm-hmm. You've probably done this. Uh, you may do it in some of your classes just for, for a, an effect. But uh, if, if you rub your hands together vigorously and close your eyes, and then with your eyes closed, kind of gently, slowly pull your hands apart, you can actually feel something between your hands. Mm. You feel this subtle energy there, and you can kind of play with it. Right. You can kind of compress it, and you can kind of pull it apart. I have no way to prove this, but my belief is that if you ask somebody in Kali Yuga to do that, they would not feel anything right. between their hands. Right. That the, that the gift of Dwapara Yuga, in the deepest sense, is the ability to perceive our own life force, our right. own subtle energy. Yeah. And if you look in the past, let me just finish this point because it's an interesting one. If sure. you look in the past and you find historically where the, the times in which people were meditating, that they were practicing yoga postures, that they were using acupuncture, and you'll see that they were all in the previous Dwapara Yuga. Mm. They were not in the last Kali Yuga anywhere. Right. So we are awakening to that knowledge and we're recognizing things from the past and their purpose from the past because we now have that knowledge again today. Right. And we're also inventing new forms like chiropractic. Yes. Chiropractic is a, a unique to our phase of Dwapara Yuga, but it works with the same knowledge and principles. And so with that... You had a question. Yeah, with, with, the dwa- with the ideas of the yugas, you know, the way you just described it, that was um, really, really perfect. And um, one of the things I liked or remember uh, how you described the yugas, you, you mentioned that it's about sort of knowledge and understanding, not necessarily about like uh, whether, a perp- whether a person is more attuned to, to dharma or these kinds of yogic ideals. And I recall, I think, when you were talking about Dwapara Yuga, uh, there was an idea that whereas in Kali, um, the individual didn't really seem to matter at all. Like no one really sat around and thought, geez, I wish, you know, we had women's rights or these sorts of things. But as we get into Dwapara Yuga, 
um, there becomes more of an emphasis on the individual, like the, the expression or the rights or the exploration of being individual. Do I remember that correctly? Yes, no, you do. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I think it's, um, again, you have, there's no evidence in anywhere in Kali Yuga of even the concept of human rights being mentioned. Right. They really don't, they really don't come along until we enter our current Dwapara Yuga. And the lot of the average person in Kali Yuga was very short life, very few rights, uh, challenging existence. You know, there was always a wealthier and more powerful veneer of people on the surface of those times, but the average person's life was little better. They were kind of like smart animals. Mm -hmm. they, right. they had no rights that an animal didn't have. You know, they could be, they could be killed without uh, recourse to laws and justice as we understand them today. And so today, as you said, there is this much greater emphasis on the rights of the individual and their place within society. And this is good news and bad news. Dwapara um, mm -hmm. Yuga, in terms of the, you know, comparing it to the height of the cycle, is still a fairly low age. One of the things I haven't mentioned yet is that each of the ages has a different length of time. So mm -hmm. Kali Yuga is the shortest at 1,200 years. Dwapara is twice that at 2,400 years. Treta is three times that at 3,600 years. And finally, Satya Yuga is four times that at 4,800 years. Mm -hmm. So if you can kind of imagine a clock face where uh, 12 o'clock is the high point of the cycle and six o'clock is the low point of the cycle, Dwapara Yuga is just barely past seven o'clock. Mm -hmm. We're really kind of low in this cycle of development. And because of that, what we're seeing in our Dwapara Yuga today is the focus on the individual taken to the negative. Right. So we are seeing dare I mention our president, uh, <laughs> someone who is, you know, totally self-interested, lacking in compassion, only wants success, only wants uh, things to go his way. Now, he's mm -hmm. an extreme example of a societal norm right. in our age. And it's really the minority at this point whom I'm certainly thinking you, Ryan, are a member of and that your listeners are members of, we're not interested in um, wealth and fame and self-aggrandizement. Right. And you're interested in realizing your spiritual potentials within. <laughs> and so that's the dance right now in Dwapara, is you've got people essentially paying more attention to that ego than to the self. Right. 
So but, enlightened self-interest is you go within and you, you experience the joy of God and you, you uh, feel your connection with other people, where the outer expression of that is that you get what you can for yourself. Right. But people have, like, the fact that we're in Dwapara Yuga and that we've had such advances in technology due to the understanding of things like uh, scientific uh, thought and knowledge, because that's happened, that, that means more people have the capacity to do that. Whereas, you know, in the, in the Middle Ages or Dark Ages, you were either a slave, a serf, or something of that nature. But now it seems like even individuals who, who might not even make a, much money compared to, to what we would consider to be wealthy, you know, they've got cell phones, they've got video games, they've got cars, they've got the capacity to, to do so much for themselves in this yuga because of all that, correct? Yes. Yes, yeah. it's definitely an enabling age, uh, certainly in comparison to Kali Yuga, but it's not a particularly wise age. Right. <laughs> yeah, reminds me of an adolescent <laughs> or a teenager. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is the teen years. I often use that example. So there's a lot of willpower and ability in a teenager, yeah. but not a lot of garnered wisdom about how to live their lives. Right. And when we think about the, the Treta Yuga or the Third Age, uh, when it comes to, to, to human consciousness, I know the idea of the increase in, in knowledge is there in wisdom, but when we get to the Treta Yuga, is it such that you know, the mental powers are there, but we also recognize like the unity between all of us? It, would, would, it, would that be happening in that age, and therefore there would be a greater sense of maybe sense of Dharma or wisdom because of that? Or, or is that, say, Prasatya? I think that that's true. Uh, they may go together. You know, the spiritual advancement may offer them this greater awareness of their fellow man mm -hmm. and therefore guide them more into a uh, more selfless humanitarian kind of activities. Uh, but you also have that mention of Sri Yukteswar, which was you know, one of the few qualities he was very specific about in Treta Yuga is this idea that um, mental telepathy would be the normal way of communicating. So right. I've always thought that that kind of goes hand in glove with being sensitively aware of somebody else. Mm -hmm. That there's as much conveyed through mental telepathy that is about what you're feeling mm. that you're meaning mm -hmm. as there is just strict meaning in your words that you use when you're in a uh, conversation today. So I think you're conveying more than just thoughts. You're conveying a whole uh, Bob, a whole feeling to other people. And in order for that to be workable, I think you have to be enormously sensitive to, to other people. Right. And that's, that's interesting. I, I never really thought about what, what you just said. It kind of triggered this, you know, many people when they, when they hear the word telepathy, telepathy, they think just like right now, you know, we're having this conversation and I can't see you and you can't see me, but it was as if our mouths aren't moving, but that conversation is happening in our head. That that's the kind of telepathy they're thinking of. But what you just described is telepathy being a sharing of, experience like a, a sharing of one's being in a way not just not just words in your head 
Yeah, and I imagine the words in your head are still there. And I would imagine that as Treta Yuga goes on, people become amazingly adept and are able to limit what they communicate, but they also would be able to like open wide what they communicate. Right. Imagine being able to learn from a spiritual teacher who can not only tell you about inner spiritual experiences, but convey that inner spiritual experience to you as they're describing it. Right, yeah. It's just as though that idea of showing, like, there it is, and you, you really get it rather than just the, the explanation. <laughs> yeah. That's and pretty you good. you probably compress knowledge in ways that just straight words in a line don't allow for that imagery and feeling and subtle meaning might be able to be conveyed in that process that is just not possible today. Right. And when you discuss um, the idea of the ages, um, you know, us being in, in Dwapara Yuga, one thing that you mentioned that we can have a, we can have a sense of energy, even, even probably people who've never really thought about it before. They could do that exercise you described and they could feel the sense of energy. But you mentioned that in Kali Yuga, they'd probably look at you like, what are you, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, but that, that leads me to the idea that we can discuss Dwapara Yuga and Satya Yuga, but it's pretty far away from what we can really truly even fathom, at least from an average standpoint. Meaning if we haven't done much meditation on our own or explored these things, that those kinds of ages, that they're really not comprehensible to us. Do you, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I agree with you. It was a, a major challenge when I was writing the book with, with my co-author, uh, David, to come up with descriptions of what it might be like in Treta Yuga. Treta Yuga especially, uh, it's kind of a little bit easier to describe Satya Yuga only because we have a rich tradition of saints mm -hmm. describing their consciousness and their mm -hmm. abilities, where Treta Yuga is kind of between this complete oneness with God and God's powers and where we are today. So Treta Yuga was a bit more of a challenge. And the kind of ideas that came to me had to do partly with um, telepathy, but also there is a hint um, in the autobiography of a yogi and some other writings of Yogananda that in Treta Yuga, people gain mental powers over matter. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where, if you're going to go tilt over this information, that you're probably going to go tilt. It, it describes a, an entire society that can basically work miracles. Right. And uh, I remember getting the idea from the book that, you know, us in Dwapara Yuga, when we kind of project ourselves into something like later Treta Yuga and so on, that many people imagine it as though like a Star Trek because we are so wrapped up in the ideas of technology and power in that regard that we think, well, that must be what it's like in these higher ages. But that's not probably so true because their, their, their understanding, their appreciation is, is a bit different, correct? Yeah, and all the things that we today try to use technology for 
can be done in other ways in Treta Yuga. Mm -hmm. So you don't need cell phones, you don't need computers, you don't need the technological uh, manufacturing capabilities that we have today because you could create things mentally. Mm -hmm. So the, the need for technology, I think, would just go away. And if there is no need, I mean, you see this today, this kind of progression today, is that an old technology just goes away right. because it's supplanted by new technology. It's not like we preserve it. We just move beyond it. Right. So by Prata Yuga, I don't think there's going to be anything of technology left just because they've already outgrown it. Yeah, and that speaks to the idea that you mentioned in there as well, that you know, why, why haven't we found these uh, relics or things from uh, the higher ages? And, well, the way you describe it is beautiful. It's because, uh, like, for example, in the Shandilya Upanishad or, or some of these spiritual texts, they're saying that the best, the best situation for a yogi is to go find a nice place to live where there's fruit, uh, uh, fruit trees everywhere and, you know, clear water and and so in a higher age, that's what people want and need, not necessarily more stuff to connect their friends, you know, across the continent, because they can just do that from a mental standpoint or, or connect in that way. Yeah, no, that, I agree completely with that. The, I think that the reason why we don't see such a large and obvious archaeological footprint from the previous Satya Yuga and Treta Yuga uh, is for that exact reason, that they didn't need to build those things in order to live their lives. Right. And so their, their footprints were more subtle. They're not missing, but they're just more subtle. And they're not, uh, you know, a lot of times you'll run into people who are into ancient anomalies or particularly the kind of um, parallel explanation for higher things happening in the age, which is the ancient astronaut theory. Mm -hmm. The people who are into the ancient astronauts assume that they're going to find lost, highly technological artifacts right. somewhere, you know, in a cave or uh, that, that, that that technology was still going to have been very much a part of that age in the past because it was brought to us by spacefaring technology using um, aliens. Right. And so there, if you, if you read their books, and, you know, they have a lot of good finds in their books as well, so I'm always, always looking for new evidence of the past. But, um, but they tend to put things into their, their conceptual framework, just as I try to put things into the Yuga's conceptual framework, and they often stretch a point about uh, something they find from, say, 6,000 BC that they think speaks to technology, where to me it's, uh, you know, iffy whether you could really base, uh, make a good case for it on that. But right. we have things like Sanskrit that we can look to. Mm -hmm. So Sanskrit, even today, some probably 10,000 years after it emerged, is still considered the most perfect language in the world. Mm -hmm. And by perfect, what is meant is that it's the most unambiguous. Mm. We've all, you know, 
seen the funny things that pop up on Facebook of people writing something in a, you know, a tweet or whatever, and you laugh out loud because you can tell what it was they meant to say. <laughs> what they actually say is the opposite, just right. because they're missing a comma or misspelling a word or something. Where Sanskrit, and I'm not a Sanskrit scholar, but from everything I read, with Sanskrit, you can be absolutely unambiguously accurate in what you want to say. Mm. So much so that in the early years of the development of programming languages, they would study Sanskrit and the way it's structured to figure out the best ways to avoid ambiguity in their code. Right. Because computer code absolutely has to be without any ambiguity mm -hmm. or everything doesn't work. And so it was used as that model. So there's good evidence to suggest that Sanskrit not only existed 10,000 years ago, but that it came into being fully formed. Mm. So there is no evidence of a proto-Sanskrit. Right. There's just Sanskrit. <laughs> you suddenly have this perfect language in which the Vedas are written, and the Vedas can be reliably dated to as early as 6700 BC. Mm -hmm. And well, the same Sanskrit that's used in the Vedas is the Sanskrit that's used today. Right. Right. And the idea of the Vedas, uh, I, was, I was hoping you were going to go that route, because what I found interesting, again, in your book was the description of uh, how the Vedas... Uh, I don't. I don't want to use a word like. I don't want to use the word like deteriorate because that's not what I mean. Um, but how, as you go, as you go through time, as the Vedas develop, they become more, say, sort of magically thinking based. But that's because they're trying to do what naturally was done in in, a, in the previous uh, previous time. Can you can you talk a little more about that? And does that question make sense? I want to make sure I'm. And being clear yes, on it. No, you're, you're making an excellent point. So there's, uh, for our listeners who may not be that familiar with the Vedas, there are actually four Vedas. There's the Rig Veda, which was the first, and then there's the Samar and the, is it the Yuga? The Yajur. Yajur Veda. Yeah. And then finally there's the Atarva Veda. Mm -hmm. And the Atarva Veda is probably dated from Dwapara Yuga, where the other three earlier Vedas are dated in Treta Yuga. Right. And so people who were creating the Atarva Veda in Dwapara Yuga probably had very, you know, were highly realized mm -hmm. uh, still. So they, in a real sense, had such a yuga consciousness and knowledge. These were rishis. These were realized beings were writing them. But they were writing them for a Dwapara audience that no longer had mental telepathy, no longer had the ability to um, just focus their minds and change water into wine or whatever they were wanting to do. Mm -hmm. And so they became really one of the first magical 
treatises in a long line of magical treatises that came out in descending to Upara Yuga. Right. Because the laws still worked. The underlying law of mental focus applied to a situation to change matter, that law exists today just as well as it did in such a Yuga and will in a um, hundred thousand years from now. It's mm-hmm. a law. But Atarva Veda gave people a way to use that law even if they didn't have as good a command of those abilities as they did in Treta Yuga. Mm-hmm. So they had to do a lot more chanting and invocations and uh, ritual practices to kind of um, eventually concentrate all their thoughts and energy into a specific end. Right. And I, I don't mean to simplify this, but this thought just occurred to me because um, I was actually thinking about a, a recipe I was going to work on this evening uh, earlier today. And uh, so in a way, what you're describing is it's as if uh, an individual who has, say, a Satya Yuga consciousness, they just know how to cook. They know how the flavors go together. They know how the spices are, are meant to combine. And so they can just do it because they have that kind of uh, innate sort of intuitive consciousness. But then there might be another individual who isn't quite as advanced or clear or doesn't have the experience, and you got to give them a recipe. So does, is that too basic of a, of a way of looking at it? From No, like, I think that's good. I might take it, I might take it one more level, which is... Um, I would say that the rishis could just cook from intuition. And in Treta Yuga, all they needed was a recipe. But in Dwapara Yuga, they need the recipe, and they need to know how to build an oven, Mm. how to make pots, how to stir, you know, the the actual basics of cooking, not just the ingredients needed to cook. I think they had lost that much spiritual knowledge by the time it had reached ascending Dwapara Yuga that they, they needed almost everything explained. Right. Ah, I see. Okay. And then, I mean, obviously there's no, no Vedas really associated with, with Kali Yuga and that's simply because they're just looking around like, <laughs> I have no idea what to do. <laughs> Is that... yeah, yeah. They're just, uh, they're eating what they can find on the bush. Right. But it is important to, to note that, you know, we, we have this, this cyclical nature. I mean, that's sort of the, the whole point of the cyclical nature. And also that in Kali Yuga, there can be one or two or a few individuals that, that manifest a, a Dwapara or Tretor Sat Yuga consciousness. It's just that they're exceedingly rare. Yes. And they're more rare the further down you go towards the lower end of the cycle. Right. And, and very, very few realized beings on the planet in Kali Yuga and those that were were dramatically um, different than other people. You had Jesus, you had Krishna, you had Buddha, you had a lot of spiritual teachers who had a huge impact because they were so much at variance to the rest of the population. Mm-hmm. And now even in Dwapara Yuga, there are a lot of people of very high consciousness that are, I wouldn't say take it for granted, but they're kind of 
they're factored into mainstream thinking now. Right, right. Yeah. And um, since I know our, our time is a limited today, and uh, what I'd like to kind of conclude with or get your insights on are, you know, I've read a few things uh, attributed to Sri Yukteswar and um, they kind of point to this idea, which is why we have things like the technology or the practices of, of Kriya Yoga and meditation that we don't necessarily have to be bound by the the yuga that we're in. Could you say a little more about that based on your experience and, and thoughts? Yeah, I think that's a very important point that people should take to heart and not only take to heart, but but feel empowered by is that in any age, you can take yourself personally through your own yuga cycle to Satya Yuga mm -hmm. in your own consciousness. And that you may be born in an age for particular reasons to help you work out your karma, but you're just working out your karma. It's not that you are necessarily no better than that age, no wiser than that age. Uh, and you have, you know, we are blessed with these amazing tools, Kriya Yoga most centrally, to help us evolve through our own yugas. So don't feel limited in any way. People often ask the opposite question. They sort of think the yugas are a, uh, like a free pass to realization. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that they're just going to kind of ride up through this uh, wave, this rising wave of consciousness, and they're going to reincarnate one time after another until they're in Satya Yuga, and then they're fully realized. But uh, Yogananda said it doesn't work that way, that there are, and he was very specific about this, which blows people's minds a lot. So there's a lot of other planets that you can incarnate on. Right. And they're not in the higher ages. So you incarnate where you need to incarnate. And if you're not ready for Satya Yuga, uh, you're going to, be sent somewhere else while Satya Yuga is happening here. Right. So make your own effort. You've got all the tools you need. You've got all the teachings you need. And there's nothing to keep you from knowing God in any age. All right. Well, I, I think that's probably the, the best statement to, to conclude on for our, for our current session. Uh, is, but is there anything else you would like to, to say about the yugas or any thoughts that you would like to share other than what we've discussed so far? Uh, no, I think that is a good note to end on. I mean, there's so much more that I could share, but I yes. think uh, we should save that for another time. Um, yes. If, if you would like that. Yeah, uh, that, would be, that would be wonderful. I, I, I wanted to go a little bit longer, but the more I... Uh, I, I picked up your book and I, I saw all the pages that I marked and I thought, if I don't stop now, <laughs> we're never going to get done. <laughs> so, good. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much, um, Joseph, for, for being here and, and, and talking with us. And, um, you know, you are the author of the book, The, y the Yugas, Keys to Understand Our Hidden Past, Emerging Energy Age, and Enlightened Future. Um, and the website for that, is it, if I recall correctly, is it the yugas? Is it just the yugas.com? What is the website for that? That is correct. It's the yugas, 
Okay, theyouthis.com, good. So those of you who want to read this book, I, I highly recommend it. And um, please check out his website as well. And we'll have some more discussions on the yugas because there's, there's a lot more to say. But thank you for being here today, Joseph. I appreciate it. Just a, a brief note. People often ask um, whether the book is available in Kindle, and it is. And it's also available in an audio format, audible okay. audio, which a lot of people um, – really like uh, audiobooks. So I just wanted your listeners to know that. Sure. Audible. Yeah. Audible is a wonderful thing. And I think it would fit really well with uh, the way you describe things. So excellent. Good. All right. Well, you, you have a good day and I look forward to being in touch for a future, future podcast. All right, Ryan, it was my pleasure. Excellent. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.